You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. See one, do one, teach one. We continue to treat dying as ineffectively as our professional forefathers, writes Dr. Pauline Chen. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Pauline Chen, a transplant surgeon and author of the book Final Exam, A Surgeon's Reflection on Mortality. Dr. Chen, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Take us back to the visible woman and describe how you became a transplant surgeon. When I was a kid, I remember going to visit my pediatrician every year, and he was a terrific sort of fatherly, grandfatherly kind of figure. And he had this routine, part of which was examining my eye. And I remember every time he did that, or every time I saw him, period, I felt like he knew all these secrets about me, like he was omnipotent and omniscient. And I was dying to be the same way or to have some control over those situations. Earlier on, I had pretty much decided that I wanted to look into medicine as a field. Well, one day I was in a toy store and, you know, again, you know, all this time I'm I'm thinking, you know, I want to be like Dr. Cartland. I want to be able to see things that no one else sees. So I was in this toy store And it was going out of business, I think, at the time. And I looked at a shelf, and there on the shelf was this box toy, this model set called The Visible Woman. It was a model of a human woman of a body about the size of a Barbie doll, maybe. And the shell, the outside was a clear plastic shell, and inside you could see everything. You could see pink lungs. You could see the you know, red and blue vessels. You could see the liver, the heart, everything. But the trick was that you had to put it all together. So I saw this box, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the secret. This is Dr. Kirkland's trick. So I begged my parents to get me one, and I begged and begged and begged. And finally, one Christmas... I've got a visible woman under the Christmas tree. And I remember just being crazed about it um, to the point where I didn't even want to touch it for a couple of weeks. I just wanted to stare at it. And I found when I finally tried to put it together, I mean, I was just a kid that, you know, it was a mess. Everything that I tried to paint turned out to be the same color. My sister and brother ended up, you know, taking the parts away and throwing them all around the house because I think they were jealous. They've actually gone on to become doctors themselves, but at the time they would think they were jealous of the attentions I was paying to the visible woman. But that was sort of the beginning, I think, of a part of the beginning of how I wanted to go into medicine. The other thing that happened was my grandfather, who was in Taiwan when I was about seven, actually this was the first thing, developed a brain tumor and we went back to Taiwan to be with him in his perioperative period. And I just will never forget when his brain surgeon came out and said to us, I got it all out. And the family, I mean, it was as if the heavens had opened and, you know, the sun had shi- it was shining through. So uh, there were some very important role models that I had early on, I think. The stories in your book are powerful and painfully honest. Tell us the story about Bobby. Bobby was a young man in his early 30s, he might have even just been 30, who had had ulcerative colitis for 15 years. And I heard about Bobby through one of the nurses I worked with 
Lou, who had taken care of Bobby for years in the inflammatory bowel disease clinic. Um, but Bobby came to us because he developed a cholangiocarcinoma, bile duct cancer. And I remember meeting him in the clinic for the first time. It was one of those beautiful Los Angeles days and the sun was shining. And the way the clinic room was set up, the sun was shining on Bobby's back against Bobby. And his mother and his fiancée were with him. So it was walking into the room was like walking into a vision because their faces were kind of blurry because the sun was blinding me and everything was kind of hazy. And there they were, these three beautiful, smiling people who were ready to basically embrace whatever I and my surgical mentor said to them. We were able to get Bobby's tumor out, but it was a pretty difficult operation. Um, I remember we had to take quite a bit of liver out. But Bobby was really graceful even in his post-operative period and, and managed to recover from from all of our, our high-tech marauding at the time. Bobby was an accountant and despite his chronic diseases, had managed to get through school with honors, was very involved in his church. Actually, he and his fiance had met through the church choir and they just finished a choir tour together. And he, he was really quite a character. I, I really liked him. After our operation, Bobby went to get chemotherapy. And for the first few months, I remember his fiance, Chris, coming to visit us and telling us that Bobby was doing well, that we, they were both very hopeful. And then the last time I saw Chris, she said to me that the oncologists were changing the chemotherapy regimen because Bobby looked like tumor had come back. And then I never saw Chris again. A few months after that, I was on rounds, and Lou, the nurse who had first told me about Bobby, told me that Bobby had been admitted to the hospital with metastatic cancer. And she asked me to go see him. And, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I'll go see him. But I think, like many of us, I didn't really want to go see him. It was just too difficult to think about Bobby now with metastatic cancer. And so I did what I had learned to do very well in training, and that was I sort of turfed the task. I assumed that, you know, he's on another service. They'll take care of him. A couple of weeks after that, Lou told me that Bobby was now in the ICU and that it looked like he was dying. And she asked me to go speak to Bobby and his fiance and his family about palliative care options. And I remember telling Lou, oh, oh, sure, I'll do that. And I also remember that I never went. And again, I thought in my mind, well, they'll take care of it. Somebody else will take care of it. I don't have to go do it. I guess I just couldn't bear the idea of seeing Bobby that way. And then, must have been a week or ten days after that, Lou told me that Bobby had died. And not only had he died, but he had died in a way that I would have never wanted for Bobby to have died. He died with a full court press. He had CPR, he was attached to multiple monitors, and... Um, in fact, it was the full court press. And I remember Lou, when she told me this, starting to cry, but she never asked me if I had gone to see Bobby. And she never, ever asked me again about Bobby. 
but I just was haunted by the picture that I had in my mind of Bobby dying that way. So I went to the ICU to look to see if anybody could fill me in on Bobby's last days. And nobody there that day that I went remembered Bobby. They just remembered that some kid died of cancer in bed seven. And then I went to the medical records, and you know they were all tied up in the paperwork bureaucracy because Bobby had just died. And so all I have thought about with Bobby is, you know, all that I remember of Bobby now are two things. I mean, besides the story, but most vividly. One is what I remember the first time I saw Bobby in that exam room, how how I felt like I was basking in their faith in me. And then the other memory that I have is is this one that's in my imagination of how Bobby died, you know, with the full court press. And it's interesting because soon after Bobby died, I started to have real difficulties in talking to patients about dying. I mean, I felt like I was choking. And and I think a lot of that had to do with my feeling ultimately like Bobby in what was the most important time for him. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Pauline Chen, discussing her book, Final Exam, A Surgeon's Reflection on Mortality. Dr. Chen, why do you believe that doctors continue to treat the dying ineffectively? What's interesting to me is that I don't know of a single doctor who does not want to help their patients. I think every one of us goes into the medical field wanting very much so, passionately so, to help people. But to all of us, or to many of us, helping means curing. And when we go through the training system, which is, I think, for the most part, a fabulous training system because here we are every year consistently producing hundreds of of well-trained doctors. But somehow in going through that system, we end up at the end of it probably as far as you could possibly be from the very people we set out to help. We can't always talk to them because they don't understand what we're saying. And so my hope with final exam with the book is that it helps in some way to encourage um, discussions among doctors, between patients and their families, between patients and doctors, helps to encourage the kind of discussions that will help not only those we love, those we care for at the end of their lives, but also ourselves. You know, there's one thing I do want to add, that in the time that has passed since I went through medical school and training. I graduated from medical school in 1991. There have been some really wonderful efforts at reform in how we train doctors in end-of-life care and palliative care. And what I hope that my book does is help to support those efforts and maybe even in some way accelerate them. You wrote at the very end of your training during moments you found nearly unbearable, you finally remembered advice you heard in medical school about being a better doctor. What was that? There was a lecturer who told me early on in medical school in a class that to be a better doctor, you have to be able to stand in your patient's shoes. And I remember hearing that as a student and sort of 
I have to admit it, sort of rolling my eyes because it seems so obvious. It just, and to my medical school classmates, I remember looking around the room and there was one person in the back that it was that was asleep during that lecture. You know, other people were rolling their eyes. But it took me nine years of training to realize that, in fact, that is the most difficult and the most important thing that we can do as doctors. And I remain grateful to that lecturer. And, in fact, I remain grateful to all of my mentors who never sort of lost sight of how important it is to plant those seeds in young students because you never know when the students go back and draw on those experiences again or draw on those lectures or those pieces of advice or insight. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.